Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing my brother and friend and senior editor. Man, he got all these titles from The Atlantic, Adam Serra, to talk about his latest piece in The Atlantic and his new book, The Cruelty is the Point. But before we get to Adam, I've got to talk about Simone Biles' decision this week to withdraw from the team portion of the gymnastics competition. And as of this recording, the individual competition as well. In case you missed it, on Tuesday during her first rotation, Biles performed an uncharacteristically bad vault, appearing to lose herself in midair. Within minutes, she pulled herself from the competition, later explaining that she wasn't in the right headspace and felt she would be a liability to the team. The U.S. still put together a silver medal performance, losing to the Russians. Biles later told reporters, quote, at the end of the day, I have to do what's right for me and focus on my mental health. Adding further, I'm not going to lose a medal for this country and for these girls. They work too hard. It's not worth it, especially when you have three amazing athletes who can step up, end quote. Now, most human or reasonable humans responded to this appropriately. You see, Biles is under immense pressure and was clearly out of it and ran the risk of jeopardizing her team standing and potentially injuring herself. So she rightfully withdrew. And predictably, from corners of the Internet and from people, usually men, who probably couldn't run a half mile without collapsing, folks question her quote unquote toughness. Look, there's a difference between mentally being unable to perform at the highest levels and an ankle sprain that you might be able to grit through. Biles has shown time and time again that she's performed at elite levels with injuries. This isn't an issue of toughness. If nothing else, we saw that many of you still don't understand what elite athletes are saying when their mental health is affecting their performance because you only understand athletes from the neck down. Biles is clearly speaking to the very real strain on the neck up for elite athletes and made the right call for her. So, Simone, we support you and commend you. And for everyone criticizing her, you can go to hell. Um, you should probably sit this one out. And that's that on that. Now on to our show with Adam Sora. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Man, I got my brother joining us today on the Bakari Sellers podcast. He was uh, He's a New York Times bestselling author, but he has been gracious enough to spend a few minutes with us today. Adam, what's going on, brother? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. I'm more blessed than I deserve, brother. Look, you know, we usually start each one of our episodes the same way, and we like for individuals to walk us through the arc of their career. Um, and you've worked your way up from a number of newsrooms to now being a regular mm -hmm. contributor with The Atlantic. So why did you choose a career in journalism? And if you don't mind, walk us through the various stops that you've had from the American prospect to your role now at The Atlantic. Oh, man. Well, I would actually say that it, this was somewhat accidental. <laughs> um, I started off wanting to make documentaries. 
And that, that was what I wanted to do. That was what I, I went to journalism school for. But in 2008, there were not a lot of journalism jobs. As it happened, I was, I had a, a sort of miserable setup um, <laughs> prior to getting into journalism school where I was working the graveyard shift at a, a local grocery store in the produce section. And I was working as a sound engineer for a studio that made books on tape for the blind and handicapped for the Library of Congress. And I was spending my waking hours playing World of Warcraft because I was miserable. And what I did was um, I basically weaned myself off of World of Warcraft by blogging. And that was back in 2007, 2006, 2008, where you could actually blog and like have people notice you. Um, and I guess you can kind of do that now on Twitter, um, but it's very dangerous. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's it, so I, st I started. So I went to journalism school. I already had a blog and the American Prospect invited me to guest blog for them. Uh, at the time, the, the blog was pseudonymous, but they said, you know, you, you have to use your real name. And so I did that. And then they asked what was me your if name? I wanted to. What, what was your, what was your uh, blogger name? <laughs> My blogger name was DNA, which was a riff on an old high school nickname, which I will not repeat. Um, <laughs> your audience will have to figure that one out. Um, there's some people out there who know what it mean, what it stands for, but I won't explain it. Um, and so they invited me and then they, they asked me if I wanted to apply for their fellowship, which you know was convenient for me because it was 2008, the economy was collapsing. And in particular, journalism as an industry was really struggling. You know, this was before, you know, everybody had agreed to, you know, paywalls and metered paywalls and stuff like that. In fact, it was very controversial at the time to, to say, you know, this was the information wants to be free era, which, you know, it was considered, um, you know, people were very critical of your outlet if they instituted a paywall, um, which, and now, you know, everybody has them. But so uh, I started at the American Prospect, which was a lot of fun. Um, it was it was a very interesting place to work because it was, I think this is when I fell in love with magazines because the American Prospect is, you know, a very, uh, what you might describe as a, a, a paleoliberal magazine. Um, mm -hmm. And that it's like very like sort of labor liberalism focused, very sort of traditional New Deal liberalism. And so it was an intellectual project. And I liked that about it. And I went from there to Mother Jones, which is a different kind of intellectual project. It's a liberal magazine, but it's much more focused on sort of uh, reporting and investigative journalism, whereas the American Prospect was. Um, and, and, you know, now they do reporting, but it was also at the time much more focused on ideas. And, uh, you know, it, in some ways was a more left wing, um, like it, 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 it's similar to the Atlantic where I work now in some ways, because it, it combines both reportage with, you know, a kind of intellectual, uh, let's yeah. talk and argue about ideas type stuff. But it's long form too. So it's, it, you don't yeah. really get, I mean, you, you get the subs, the sustenance that you don't necessarily get from some of our political discourse today, which I refer to as being decently silly, but like, why did you yeah. choose, why did you choose particularly at the Atlantic and, and American prospect, I guess, why did you choose it was to totally accidental? I mean, Why'd you choose to write about race, though? And I ask as someone who talks about oh. race quite quite a bit, that work comes with risk and death threats and exhaustion and chronicling all the daily aggressions. But why did you choose this work in particular? 
you know, I actually tried to avoid it at first. You know, I think it was sort of a, it, I think there was an expectation that this would be my focus because, you know, my, my mother is black and my father is Jewish. And so, the, 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 you know, it, it was a topic of interest to me, but I sort of wanted to write about other things. So I spent a lot of time writing about immigration and civil liberties and stuff. But what happened was that, you know, our politics, I mean, race really, race and racism really sort of was thrust into the center of our politics, you know, for structural reasons, but also because of Barack Obama and, and the reaction, the backlash to Barack Obama. And so it was sort of accidental that I ended up writing about this stuff. I really tried to resist it at first, but there were things that needed to be said. And I think if you, if you remember what the, you know, there were so few, there's so many more black writers now. I mean, even at the Atlantic, like we have a murderer's row of people. We have Clint Smith, we have Adam Harris, we have mm-hmm. Hannah Georges, we have Van Newkirk. You know, we, ha- we, we have so many people who are, are, are excellent, but like magazines at that time really did not have those kinds of rosters of black writers. And in fact, a lot of, a lot of them still don't, but you know, there was, I mean, like, I think people forget about the way that Barack Obama was covered in 2008. Like there was a genuine like cultural blindness like a lot of prestigious outlets really did not have any idea how to cover race or how to cover black people at all um you know there's a chat with a new york times with someone who's like a now a new york times politics editor when 2008 was like you know if you think about it obama is really more white than he is black um you know because i don't he, remember that like, i missed that yeah, piece it, I, I, I mean it, 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 it's just and i'm not i don't mean to pick on him in particular I just that was the assessment that was the kind of essentialized discourse that existed in 2008 and and so there, there you know there was i mean in some ways barack obama's election forced this kind of integration of these elite publications because they needed people who could actually know what they were talking about and i think you know it's less that I really wanted to write about this stuff than that, you know, the nature of the politics of the country just went fiercely in that direction where, where the country became racially polarized on so many issues. I mean, there's a book by Michael Tesler, uh, who's a political scientist called post-racial or most racial. Um, and he notes that opinions on Portuguese water dogs became racially polarized during the Obama administration for no other reason than that Barack Obama owned a Portuguese water dog. Um, so, you know, this is like, in some ways, you know, there's so many other factors in American society, but, you know, race, um, issues of race came to the forefront in part because of this, you know, because of the election of the first black president and because of the backlash to that election, which I think to this day continues to define our politics, um, in ways that are, you know, in some ways scary and harmful, um, which is part of, you know, what the cruelty is the point is about. Let's talk about uh, along those same lines. You just wrote one of the best pieces of the week. You get the award for the best piece of the week out of all of the periodicals Thank and you. journals. Um, but you say Democratic leaders are betraying black voters, which I agree with wholeheartedly. Talk to us about the reasoning behind this article. Everybody should go pick it up. But uh, the gist of this piece as well. I mean, you know, this is really an old story in American politics, which is that black voters whichever party that they're a part of become sort of an essential constituency for um, universal political rights, because typically, traditionally, Black voters have been denied those political rights. And so the more universal they are, the more they're guaranteed for uh, Black Americans. 
And so this, you know, in, in the, in the 1870s, at the end of reconstruction, the Republican party, you know, the Democrats successfully disenfranchised black voters and that changed the nature of the Republican party. You can see Frederick Douglass writing about this, where the Republican party, he, he fears it's becoming a business oriented corporate party because it's been severed from its working class black constituency in the South. And, you know, in the 1930s, the reverse happens. Black voters, because they've been generally abandoned by Republicans, black voters in the North go for Roosevelt because despite the fact that the Democratic Party is the party of Jim Crow, their uh, interventionist agenda is an economic agenda that black vote that appeals to black voters in the North. And, you know, black leadership is actually pretty slow in recognizing the appeal of the Roosevelt agenda to black voters. But, you know, obviously the integration of black voters into the Democratic Party completely changes the nature of the party from the party of Jim Crow Mm -hmm. to the party of civil rights. And, you know, because of the racial polarization of the parties, we have this sort of weird situation where the party of Lincoln is now seeking to sever black voters or minimize their influence on the political process because they don't want to be accountable to them and they want to prevent Democratic officials from being from winning elections. So the easiest way for them to do that, if they don't want to try and win those votes, is to try and minimize their influence or prevent Black people from voting in the first place. Now, the reason I I went back to Reconstruction here is that the severing of Black voters from the Republican Party changed the nature of the party. And what you're seeing Mm -hmm. right now is an attempt by Republicans to change the shape of the electorate. They want to make it more right-wing even if they're not successful in making sure that they win every election, to the extent that they are successful in minimizing the influence of Black voters, the country moves to the right, particularly on economic issues. And Democrats become less competitive. And to become more competitive, they will have to be less solicitous of the views of Black voters, who, after all, whose influence would be minimized, at least if the schemes that the Republican Party are engaging in at this particular moment are successful. And so but, for the Democratic along, Party, along, the, along those same lines, yeah, it, it, can you draw that line for listeners from Shelby to this year's court case? Yeah. Uh, to the Republican efforts in legislatures across the country? Right. I mean, you know, there, there's this idea that Trump turned the Republican Party bad. But the truth is that John Roberts, since the 1980s, um, and this is an article I wrote from Mother Jones in 2013, I believe was looking at his papers when he was a Justice Department lawyer in the Reagan administration, he was arguing against an effects, adding an effects test to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Because John Roberts fundamentally believes that attempts to address racism cause are more uh, harmful than racism itself. (laughs) And he particularly believes this when it comes to voting. So the Supreme Court, since 2013, since since the Shelby County decision, has slowly blessed every effort that Republicans have made to minimize uh, the influence of black voters on the political process in the United States. And Democrats are now in office and they often talk a good game about how, you know, as Barack Obama said in 2016, you know, democracy is on the ballot. And as Biden said, you know, the soul of the country is at stake. But the problem is that Democratic leaders keep telling black voters that their rights are on the line, which they are, and expecting them to come out in record numbers to rescue the Democratic Party from you know, the appeal of reactionaries like Donald Trump. But then once they win power, they don't use that power to defend black rights. Now, there's a particular problem here. And the problem is largely in the Senate. It's Democrats like 
you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who are unwilling to change the Senate rules to allow voting rights legislation to pass with a simple majority. But they're but also the the, those two it, are also just giving cover to others who feel just like right. them, but who don't. They also giving cover to the Shaheens and the testers of the world, et cetera. It's likely that there are more Democratic senators than the ones who are publicly coming out against changing the rules. The problem is, is that this leaves the rights of the Democrats, most loyal constituency in limbo. And, you know, if, if you're in and the Democratic Party really has a moral obligation to defend the rights of, you know, it's historically marginalized constituencies, because we understand that when those constituencies lack the political power to influence the process, they are often subject to persecution and discrimination. And so, you know, I, while I understand that, you know, Tester in Montana and, uh, you know, Joe Manchin in West Virginia are serving very different constituencies. These are Trump states. They're serving very different constituencies than, you know, uh, senators in California. The fact remains is that the Democratic Party is not viable without the incredible commitment and motivation of black voters. And they are not doing right by those voters in doing everything they can to defend their political rights. And that will have consequences for the Democratic Party down the road as well. It's not, you know, it, to the extent that these Republican schemes maximize the influence of the black vote and maximize the influence of conservative uh, white constituencies across the country is successful, that is going to change the nature of American politics. And the, the sort of ideological and political diversity of the Democratic Party, which in other areas is a good thing, um, the homogeneity of the Republican Party is part of what has led it to the down this authoritarian path. Um, in this case, it is preventing them with it from acting with the necessary unity of purpose to defend the rights of their beleaguered constituencies. And that's a real problem. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom terms apply. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Two questions here. What? Well, three questions here, and they all tie along the same path. What should Joe Biden and Washington Democrats be doing? And then 
what should black folks be doing as they watch this calculus play out? I don't, you know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to these questions. You know, I'm not a political strategist. I'm not a legislative expert. I can look at history and tell you what happened in the past. I can look at the present and tell you what's happening now. And I can tell you what historically uh, has occurred to parties that whose constituencies uh, power is minimized or marginalized in this way and how that affects those parties. But I don't, I mean, it is, it is definitely the case that, uh, you know, Joe Biden lacks leverage over someone like Joe Manchin because he, you know, he, he's probably the only Democrat who could win in that state. Um, but that doesn't actually change the nature of the fact that this is a broken promise to black voters. If they do not act on a federal level to defend these rights from an assault that is both happening in the states and happening on the federal court level from the Supreme, you know, from a majority of the Supreme Court justices, um, you know, they have broken their promise to these voters to defend their rights. And that, you know, that will likely have consequences as well. How can folks find this latest piece? I, I, it's just online at the Atlantic, right? They should frame right, it. It's but, on the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I just, I think it, it, a lot of people will respond to me by saying, well, what should Joe Biden do? How can he twist Joe Manchin's arm? It's like, I don't, I don't have the answer to that question, but I don't think that's an argument against stating plainly what is happening here, which is that Democratic leaders made a promise to defend the rights of black voters and they have not fulfilled that promise. That's just a, that's just a fact. Well, look, if LBJ took the same position in calculus that Joe Biden is taking, then the civil rights act would never been signed. I mean, that's, that's using my historical analysis and and you are much more depth and nimble at understanding history as it relates to today than I, but that's my analysis. Let's talk about your new book. The cruelty is the point. First, congratulations on getting a book done. I am struggling in the middle of my second book. Um, your book is a struggle, but it's a struggle because it's just, I mean, it's an emotional uh, struggle for me, but it's a fantastic book and I encourage everyone Thank to read so it. Much. Talk about the title because I feel like there was always this outrage about the cruelty around Trump. And I think you wrote a piece about cruelty uh, or a tweet about cruelty mm-hmm. back in the day that that Republicans got all or your your counterparts on the right got, got all out of sorts on. But unpack the title and the gist of the book for listeners. So, um, you know, most people think about cruelty as an individual problem. And it is that it's, you know, it's part of human nature. I can be cruel. Uh, Anybody can be cruel. If you've ever been a child in a junior high school, you know how cruel children can be. And in fact, you know, one of the apolitical examples of this that I give is that, you know, if you've ever seen, you know, a bunch of cool kids making fun of a nerdy kid, uh, you know, maybe you join in because you want to be a part of the cool kids group. Maybe you uh, don't say anything because you're worried about drawing their attention, or you know maybe you're one of the few who might actually stand up for a kid like that in that situation. But the point is that the, the, this act of cruelty is uh, an act of community formation. The kids who are picking on the kid who's alone are bonding with each other through this act of cruelty and transgression. And you know what? Uh, when I wrote the piece that the book take its, takes its title from in 2018, I was it was after a Trump rally during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, uh, where the president specifically, uh, you know, Christine Blasey Ford, who had accused Brett Kavanaugh um, and a childhood friend of uh, sexually assaulting her when they were teenagers. She mentioned during her testimony that uh, one of the things that she remembered the most was that uh, was them laughing at her. 
Um, and Donald Trump, and at, the, at this rally, made this concerted effort to ridicule her. In other words, he made an effort to make his audience laugh at her. Um, and this struck me because he he did the one he zeroed in on sort of a vulnerability and he exploited it. And the people who he did that in front of, uh, you know, enjoyed it. They were having a good time. It was an act of bonding between the president and his supporters. Um, and so the book is really focused on that kind of cruelty as a part of politics, specifically the way that it's used to demonize certain groups. So you can justify denying them their basic rights under the Constitution or exclude them from the political process. And this isn't inherently a partisan thing. I think it's a, it, it's a, it's a function of uh, the relative diversity of the party's coalitions. If you are the Democratic Party and you have to unite hipsters in Dumbo with church ladies in South Carolina, you have to, you can't just like mock all kinds of people. On the other hand, if your party is largely made up of white Christians, you can act with a kind of contempt towards outside groups uh, that, you know, your rival politicians can't do. And part of that is really structural. You know, our system incentivizes this kind of politics because it allows one party to hold power without winning a majority of the votes. And so it becomes even more urgent if you were the party representing that constituency to persuade them that they're on the verge of destruction, that anything they do to prevent that destruction is justified. And so that's how you end up where these acts of cruelty um, instead become in their interpretation, heroic acts of self-defense of their community, which is the real America against the fake America, which is destroying their way of life. Um, let me, and so let me it, ask you a, stupid, a, let me ask you a question, mm-hmm. Adam, because I, when I was writing your, your script today, mm-hmm. I have one question on here, which I thought was relatively stupid. And I still think it's stupid, but I think you're kind of answering it. But why do so many Americans sign on to this type of cruelty? I mean, from border separations to condoning a violent insurrection, how did we get here where people accept cruelty? I mean, I think, I think it's, like I said, I think it's part of human nature. Mm. But I also think it is, you know, it, uh, another example, my friend Ta-Nehisi Kotev, um at an event. Oh, that my, we were my, doing. Friend, he, he, my friend Ta-Nehisi. I don't even think the man exists. I've never met him. <laughs> he's, he, he's, 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 he's the, the one person who fled the internet and has <laughs> succeeded in never coming back. But he, you know, he mentioned street harassment. So, you know, when, when men holler at a woman on the street, they're not really expecting her to turn around and be like, yeah, let's, you know, let's go have lunch. That you know doesn't I mean? work. They're, Wait a minute. That doesn't, they, that doesn't work. <laughs> they're, they're performing for the other men around them and they're bonding in their like placement of the woman in her place. Um, and so I think, you know, it, this is a, again, this is like a very powerful human impulse um, that is being exploited on a political level that can only be tempered by the kind of tolerance that is bred by sharing power with people who are different from you. And if you don't have to share power from people with people who are different from you, then you don't have to respect them. Um, and, and I think what the record shows throughout history, I mean, one of the exa- one of the other historical examples you can give is that, you know, in the, it, you know, at the end of Reconstruction, you had this populist movement where white and black workers in the South were starting to work together for their common interests. Mm-hmm. And that movement was essentially shattered by a Democratic Party campaign of white supremacy, whose purpose was to destroy this community that might have transcended race by creating a community that was defined by the color line. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is part of what I'm talking about. Is it, is, it is basically an exploitation of the darker sides of human nature for the purpose of, an, of attaining political power. Um, and I think that it is 
um, an intoxicating feeling for, for people to feel like they are bonding with other people who are like them, you know, against an enemy who wants to destroy them because it makes them feel righteous. Um, now, it's simply not the case. Like, this is a myth. Like, when Donald Trump goes and says, you know, I may be, uh, you know, a bastard, but I'm your bastard and I'm protecting you from them, you know, from the apocalypse, from the destruction of your way of life. That's not really true. You know, that is an apocalyptic mindset he's cultivating for the purpose of winning political power. Um, but for the people who he is talking to, it feels very real, you know. And so when he attacks those people who are outside of their community, they enjoy it because they understand it as a kind of act of resistance against people who are uh, oppressing them. And it, even though that's an inversion of what's actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always said that um, economic anxiety is a myth. One of the things that you're seeing being very pervasive is cultural anxiety. And he mm -hmm. plays into that. Um, one of my last questions for you before I let you go, because I think listeners are going to have to unpack this because you, you were you were just utterly brilliant. You're one of the most Thank brilliant, you. brilliant people I talk to every day, not named Roland Martin. <laughs> but it, <laughs> well, Roland, I mean, Roland's, uh, you know, he, he's the king. He's a legend. That's right. Uh, let me ask you this. Is it possible for Republicans to separate out white national politics or white nationalist politics from their party's base? politics and identity, can they separate that cruelty um, and still have the party, a, a party that's viable or successful? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, um, I think again, this is a question of in, in some sense integration. I mean, to the extent that the Republican party um, serves a more diverse constituency, both ideologically and you know, culturally, racially, um, they will become a more tolerant party. Um, you know, there's always going to be people who, have conservative views on religion. In fact, many of them vote for the Democratic Party right now. But you know, there are always going to people be people who have conservative views on religion, who have conservative views on economics, who have conservative views on immigration. That's never going to go away. But the kind of politics that we're talking about is a function of a system that uh, rewards that kind of politics because of the influence it, it grants um, to certain. Um, constituencies, whether it's through gerrymandering in the House, whether it's through malapportionment in the Senate, or whether it's through the Electoral College. Um, so I want to, like, in, in some ways, I'm trying to depersonalize it. I really mm -hmm. do think that this is a function of our system. And, you know, to the extent that Democrats actually want to prevent or make this kind of politics less viable, they really have to work to make the system fairer, which is something that they have proven unable to do as of yet. Where can folks find your book? They can find my book anywhere. Uh, I encourage you to shop from your local indie. If you don't know where that is, you can check out IndieBound, which has a list of, of those. Um, you know, obviously, we want to make sure that uh, smaller businesses, that all your book buying business doesn't go to Amazon. But thank you for having me on the show. And, and, and I hope your audience will check it out. Man, you've been, you've been, it's a blessing to all my listeners. Give a shout out to Adam. Thank you so much for coming on the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you brother. so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Before I let you go, I wanted to speak to the very real resurgence of COVID as a result of Americans' unwillingness to be adults about this. That's why we can't have good things. But because I believe in placing blame where it belongs, I think it's worth noting that recent polling that I came across from Axios about who exactly are the unvaccinated. And surprisingly, the most vaccine-hesitant population is white Republican men. Big shocker there. The same crowd that gave you Donald Trump and the Cracker Barrel crew 
this past January 6th is also the group pushing back the hardest on masks and not getting vaccinated. While this is water is wet news to many of us, here's what I'm getting at. A lot of conversations around hesitancy have centered around people of color and their distrust for the medical community. And while this is true, we won't make progress against this pandemic until white men decide not to fuck this country up even further. So I hope Sean Hannity, the pillow guy, Joe Rogan, and whoever else white men get their news from is listening. Because if we slide back into shutdowns, they're the ones to blame. And our consternation and the focus of any outreach should be our NASCAR races and not the barbershop. As only 12% of black folks were not at all likely to get the vaccine in recent polling, the number of white Americans is a whopping 68%. So let's fix this. And that's that on that. See you guys on Monday.